He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. At every Mass, uh, during the last Gospel, we hear one of the saddest lines in all of sacred scripture. In propria venit, et sui eum non receperunt. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now we've entered into the season of Passion Tide, which places this tragic reality before us. Passion Tide, last two weeks of Lent. As Dom Gaspar Lefebvre, the author of the brilliant commentary in St. Andrew's Missal, points out, quote, The purpose of Passion Tide is to call to our minds the persecution of which our Lord was the object in his public life, most especially the last year of his ministry. Then it was that the hatred of his enemies, which increased daily, began to take tangible form, culminating in the drama which the Church reproduces in Holy Week when day by day she follows the footsteps of her Lord. Close quote. And this hatred and persecution of our Lord is placed before us in the readings in the next two weeks. We'll turn back to Dom Gaspar's summary in a moment, but as we go through that, it might help if everybody had at least a rough idea of the geography of Palestine in the time of our Lord to understand where he's going. So on the west, you have the Mediterranean Sea. kind of curves down a little bit as it gets towards the Sinai. On the west, and about 40 miles inland, and it runs uh, north to south, is you have the Jordan River. So it starts up north in the mountains by Caesarea Philippi, and then it comes down and forms the Sea of Galilee, and then runs almost straight south for 65 miles, and it forms the Dead Sea. So you have the Mediterranean Sea, and about 40 miles inland, you have the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and down here, the Dead Sea. All right, between the Sea of Galilee and, uh, and the Mediterranean Sea, you have an area called Galilee. That's where Galilee is. That's where Nazareth is. And right on the top of, of the Sea of Galilee, right on the north shore is Capernaum. So you have Capernaum and Nazareth up there in Galilee. Right below Galilee, again between the, the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, is Samaria. That's where the Samaritans live. And then below Samaria, the, the, right below Samaria, again next, next to the Jordan River and then bordering on, on the, the Dead Sea, you have Judea. And in Judea, you have places like Bethlehem, uh, Bethany, and Jerusalem. That's in Judea. So, again, you have the Mediterranean Sea, about 40 miles inland. You have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And then it goes from, from north to south. You have Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. On the other side, just on the east side of the, of the River Jordan, on the north, you have an area called Decapolis, which goes about a third of the way down the river towards uh, the Dead Sea. The Decapolis, it's named that because there's ten cities. So that's... That's up here, sort of the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then below that is Perea. Perea goes, is on the, on, on the other side of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River, and east of the, of the Dead Sea. So, some idea of the geography there. Now, let's turn back to Dom Gaspar's commentary on Passion Tide. Quote, the purpose of Passion Tide is to call to our minds a persecution of which our Lord was the object in his public life, most especially the last year of his ministry. In the readings this week, we will see our Lord absolve St. Mary Magdalene, the woman who was a sinner, but who did not fear to come and throw herself at his feet while he reclined at the table of Simon the Pharisee. And Judas's greed 
foreshadows his crime. After the transfiguration, Jesus returns to Capernaum. Remember, that's up here in the north of the Sea of Galilee. Immediately afterwards, making a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He proclaims himself the founding of living water, refreshing the souls of men, and foretells his approaching death. When the festivities are over, he gives proof of his divinity to the Jews, who in consequence try to stone him. He returns to Galilee, but again visits Jerusalem in the winter for the Feast of the Dedication. The Jews again wish to stone him, accusing him of being a blasphemer who claims to be one with the Father in heaven. Subsequently going into Perea, our Lord is called from thence to Bethany, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, a miracle which wins him such renown that the Jews, no longer able to contain their jealous hatred, definitely decide upon his death. Our Lord, therefore, takes refuge at Ephraim, that's in northern uh, Judea near the boundary of Samaria, returning six days before the Passover to Bethany, where for his burial, Mary Magdalene pours a precious ointment over his feet. The next day, Palm Sunday, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The same evening, he leaves the town, returning the next day, that's Monday of Holy Week, when he receives certain Gentiles in the temple. On Wednesday evening, he goes towards the Mount of Olives, foretelling to his disciples his passion, now close at hand. He does not return to Jerusalem until Thursday evening for the Last Supper, is crucified the next day on Calvary at the city gates, is buried the same day in the sepulcher, from whence he rises triumphant on the Sunday morning. Close quotes, Don Gaspar. Okay, now that we have an overview of Passion Tide, which the Church sets before us to call to our minds the persecution that our Lord suffered during his public life, and most especially during the last year of his life, now that we've taken a look at the big picture, let's turn to today's Gospel. To put it in context, it's taken from the 8th chapter of St. John's Gospel. Keep in mind that by this time, even if it isn't obvious to everyone yet that our Lord is God the Son, still, it's quite apparent that our Lord has been sent from heaven. Now, Nicodemus has made this clear. Nicodemus, he's one of the leaders of the Jews, a member of the great Sanhedrin. Nicodemus said to our Lord back in chapter 3 of St. John's Gospel, quote, Rabbi, we know that thou art come a teacher from God. For no man can do these signs which thou dost, unless God be with him. Close quote. So for several years now, by the miracles alone, they're fully aware that our Lord has been sent by God. They know. So that's important to keep in mind. So here's the situation of today's gospel. Our Lord is teaching the temple, and he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me walketh not in darkness, but shall have the light of day. Well, the Pharisees just can't stand hearing this. And they launch an aggressive and very abusive dialogue with our Lord. And we'll pick up there in verse 46. We'll just hit highlights of the conversation of today's gospel, and we'll follow the commentary of Cornelius Lapide here. John chapter 8, verses 46 and 47. Our Lord responds with frightening words to the Pharisees. If I say the truth to you, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth the words of God. Therefore, you hear them not, because you are not of God. Cornelius Lapidae, quote, This is as Christ had said, This is the true reason why you not believe me, because you are not born of God, but of the devil. 
That is because you do not listen to and follow the spirit and prompting of God, but of the devil. For whosoever are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God, as we hear in Romans 8:14. For the devil has blinded your hearts with covetousness, hatred, and envy of me. Therefore you do not listen to the words of God, which I, who am sent from God, announce to you, because you are unwilling to hear and understand them. Because then you are not the children of the truthful God, but of the lying devil. You listen to his lying suggestions and obey them, but will not give a hearing to the true words of God, which are uttered by me. St. Gregory the Great infers that it is a mark of divine predestination if someone hears the words of God and obeys his holy inspirations, and that it is a sign of reprobation if someone rejects them, as it is said in Proverbs 1, 24, and 26, Because I called and you refused, I also will laugh at your destruction and will mock when that shall come to you which you feared. For as Christ says in John ten twenty seven, My sheep hear my voice. For just as a sheep that hears the voice of its shepherd is safe from the wolf, but the one that was, does not goes astray and is devoured by the wolf, so too those who hear the voice of Christ the shepherd are saved, but those who do not hear are devoured by the devil. That is why Christ plainly declares, Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, they don't accept this correction meekly. Verse 48. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, Do we not say well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? This was an atrocious insult and blasphemy against Christ. How wondrous, then, the humility and patience of Christ in tolerating it, as is evident from his very modest reply. Here's his reply. I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you have dishonored me. Marvel here at Christ's meekness amidst such great affronts, which he denies as false, since he is truthful. Yet since he is mighty, he does not return the insult. Just think of how gentle our Lord is. This is God, they've just said, is possessed with the devil. Cornelius Lapide points out that we should, quote, learn from this, O religious, O preacher, O Christian. Learn from Christ thy master to accept calumnies for thy good deeds, curses and ill will for thy kindnesses. Learn also to do good for the ungrateful. For Christ, though constantly teaching the Jews, healing them, delivering them from evil spirits, yet meekly endure these insults and reproaches, ingratitude in return for benefits, blasphemies for miracles, and ridicule and reproof for his teaching. And nevertheless, did not cease to do good for those who were ungrateful. This is the summit of patience and charity. Close quote. So we need to learn from his example there. Now the dialogue continues in that kind of fashion. Never forget what we're seeing here is God the Son. God the Son, who's come on a mission of mercy to save us poor sinners. We're seeing God the Son being treated with other contempt by his very own creatures. Our Lord tells the Jews, Abraham, your father, rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Now, there are several fascinating aspects of this statement of our Lord. Our Lord is reminding his hearers of a Jewish tradition which speaks of the Messiah. It can still be read in a Jewish commentary on Genesis called the Midrash Bereshit Rabbah. I'll read from someone commenting on that Midrash. Quote, we read in a commentary on the opening words of Genesis 15:18 that when God made the covenant with Abram, God, we're quoting now from the Midrash, revealed to him both this dispensation and the dispensation to come, close quote, which refers to the days of the Messiah. Jewish tradition, therefore, here exerts exactly what Jesus stated in these words. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was glad. Close quote, Alfred Eidersheim. Just to make sure everyone caught that, let's go back through it really quickly. Jewish tradition held that when God made the covenant with Abraham, he revealed two things. Everything that had to do with the covenant that God was making right then with Abraham, that covenant, and also those things that had to do with a future covenant, the covenant to be made in the days of the Messiah, which, as we know, is the new and everlasting covenant which has been made in his blood and which we have been baptized into, okay? So when our Lord points out to the Jews that their father Abraham saw his day and was glad, what's he telling them? He's telling them, all right, you guys, you know that Abraham saw the two covenants, the one that God was making with him, that's the first one. And he also saw the ones that would be made in the days of the Messiah. That's the second one. So our Lord is telling them, look, I'm telling you that Abraham saw my day and was glad. My day. So whose day is he referring to? The Messiah's day. Our Lord is telling him, look, I'm the Messiah. There's another meaning to all this as well. But in order to understand that clearly, it might help if we reviewed the geography of the underworld. In his book on the circumstances of purgatory, that great cardinal and doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellarmine, summarizes the common teaching of the church that the underworld has four levels or four chambers. Quote, one for the damned, another for those being purified, a third for the unbaptized children, and a fourth, which is now empty, for the just who died before the passion of Christ, close quote. And he points out that Gehenna, the hell of the damned, is in the absolute depths of the earth. That purgatory, the place where the souls are being purified, is, quote, also in the depths of the earth next to Gehenna, close quote. And he cites several authorities, including the doctors, St. Augustine and the Venerable Bede, to the effect that purgatory is next to hell and that the souls in purgatory are being purified by the same fire. He also cites the liturgy of the church, which in the offertory of the Requiem Mass prays, Libra animus defunctorum de penis inferi de profundo laco. Deliver the souls of the faithful, uh, the souls of the faithful departed from the pains of hell and from the deep pit. St. Robert then treats of the limbo of the infants, stating, quote, Moreover, the limbo of the infants is in the underworld is proven. For the last session of the Council of Florence distinctly defined that both those who die in mortal sin as well as those who die in original sin immediately descend into the underworld but to different penalties. And St. Augustine teaches that the Catholic faith only knows of two locations where men may spend eternity, the heaven of the blessed and the underworld. It is indeed the common opinion of the scholastic theologians that the limbo of the children is in a much higher part of the underworld than purgatory, 
so that the fires do not reach them, which was also held by Pope Innocent III. Close quote, St. Robert Bellarmine, Doctor of the Church. Finally, St. Robert says that the limbo of the fathers, which is where Abraham was at the time of our Lord, was disputing with the Jews, that that is in the highest level of the underworld. So you have hell above that purgatory. They have the same heating system. Above that, far above that, you have the limbo of the children and then the limbo of the fathers. And that was, of course, emptied on Easter Sunday. Remember, before that first Easter Sunday, if you were a saint and died in the state of grace, like St. Joseph or, or Father Abraham, you went straight to the limbo of the fathers. You couldn't go to heaven. It wasn't possible. Adam's sin had shut heaven. Mankind was absolutely, completely excluded from heaven. If you died in a state of grace and you still needed some purifying, you would, of course, go to purgatory. And then once you're purified, you'd be released from purgatory and go to the limbo of the fathers. Okay, so now we have a handle on the geography of the underworld. Let's turn back to today's gospel. Our Lord told the Jews, Abraham, your father, rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. Cornelius Elapide explains yet another aspect of this statement. Quote, Abraham and Limbo, the Limbo of the fathers, saw, that is, knew the day and time when Christ was incarnate, March 25th, 1 B.C., and was born, December 25th, 1 B.C., not only from what Simeon said, who had held the Christ child in his arms and dying shortly afterward, descended into Limbo and announced to Abraham that Christ was born, that he had seen him and carried him in his arms. And the same was announced to him by Anna the prophetess, as well as Zacharias, and the mother of the Blessed Virgin, St. John the Baptist, who went down into limbo before Christ's death. But besides that, Abraham actually saw it with his mind's eye, by the revelation of God and angels, and through a clear perception. For this is the real meaning of he saw. For the verb to see means to contemplate, to behold. Therefore, Abraham from limbo... God, having uplifted the eyes of his mind, saw Christ become incarnate and being born, just as the angels and the blessed from heaven behold what takes place on earth and in hell. Abraham longingly desired to see this and beheld it as though present. For the solemn promise that Christ should be born of him had been frequently made to him by God. And it was due to him, so to speak, on account of his faith, obedience, sanctity, and many merits that Abraham, being the father of faith and of believers, who for 2,000 years, without any fault of his own, indeed in a state of great holiness, faith, and hope, was detained in limbo, most eagerly awaiting Christ, his deliverer, might for his own consolation and that of his fellow patriarchs and to alleviate their long and anxious expectation of Christ Know the day when Christ became incarnate and was born. For 2,000 years then, Abraham had eagerly awaited Christ, languishing and sighing for the day of his birth. And therefore God revealed it to him and showed it to him in spirit. And then Abraham exulted and rejoiced with all the saints in limbo. Lastly, the angels who comfort the souls in purgatory much more consoled the souls of Abraham, the patriarchs, and the prophets in limbo. That is why they announced to them the birth of the long-desired Christ, just as the same angels announced his birth to the shepherds. Close quote. Now Cornelius de Lapide explains why Christ made this remark to the Jews. Quote, 
Number one, to show that he was greater than Abraham, that he was God. Number two, to show in what great esteem he was held, even in his absence by Abraham, though the Jews, the sons of Abraham, despised him while he was actually present among them. Number three, and also to prick their consciences indirectly in this way. Abraham had so a great longing for me, but you have rejected me. You are therefore not true children of Abraham, but illegitimate and degenerate. Hence he says, Abraham your father, that is, Abraham whose children you glory in being, whereas I do not glory in him, but rather Abraham glories and exalts in me. Close quote. And now the malicious and deliberate twisting of words by the Jews becomes evident. Our Lord has just told them that Abraham had seen his day, and they twist that statement completely around as if our Lord had said he had seen Abraham's day. The Jews therefore said to him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Now word games like that are a clear sign of bad will. They don't have good will at all. Our Lord has been going around and teaching and doing miracles. They've known from the beginning of his public ministry that he's sent by God. And today they've challenged him and poured contempt on him, and he's just made it clear to them that he's the Messiah. But they instantly come back with yet another malicious response. So in response to their malice, our Lord really ups the ante. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Before Abraham was made, I am. Now this is an amazing statement, because our Lord has just told the Jews exactly who he is. Way back in Exodus 3, when Moses spoke to God in the burning bush and asked him his name, God answered, I am who am. That's the name of the Lord God, I am who am. And as St. Augustine points out, when our Lord answers the Jews here, quote, He doesn't say, before Abraham was made, I was made, for in the beginning was the word. Instead, he says, before Abraham was made, I am. Close quote. The I am shows his eternal divine nature. In other words, our Lord has just told them that he's God. In this conversation, he's let them clearly know that he's the Messiah, and he's also let them clearly know that he's God. And they might have been playing a bunch of malicious word games, but boy, they really understood what he was saying right here. They took up stones, therefore, to cast at him. Cornelius Elapide explains, they took up stones, therefore, to cast at him as a blasphemer because he placed himself above Abraham and compared and made himself equal to God. Blasphemers were ordered to be stoned in Leviticus 24, 16. It is clear that these Jews were not those who are said earlier in the chapter, in chapter 8, uh, verse 30, said to have believed in him, but others who did not believe and were opposed to Christ. So we can see that not all the Jews played follow the leader and just went along with what everybody else is doing. Really important to note. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He hid, not in some corner of the temple, for there the Jews would have found him by searching diligently. Rather, he hid himself from their eyes, because by his divine power he made himself invisible to them, and thus passed unharmed through the midst of his enemies and went out of the temple, yielding to their fury. Listen to St. Augustine. It was more important for him to recommend wisdom than to exercise his power. 
He forsakes them, since they would not accept his correction. He hides not himself in a corner of the temple, as if afraid, or running away to a cottage, or turning aside behind a wall or a column, but by his divine power, making himself invisible to those who lay in wait for him, he passed through their midst. As a man, he fled from the stones, but woe to them from whose stony hearts God flies away. Close quote. St. Augustine, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. Let's close. During this Passion Tide, as we ponder the persecution which our Lord suffered at the hands of his own people, the abuse and contempt and scripture twisting that he had to undergo, as we ponder the sad reality that he came to his own and his own received him not, let us not forget that we are now his own. Let us not forget that we are now his chosen people. Let us not forget our baptismal promises when we renounce the devil in all his works and all his pomps and promise to be faithful to him. And although it is true that many of our so-called Catholic leaders play slick word games as they twist scriptures and pour out contempt and abuse on our Lord, let us make sure that we are not guilty of the same kind of abuse in our own lives by trying to twist around the teachings of the church to justify our sins, or most especially by coming up before God and man and then making a sacrilegious communion. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave him the power to be made the sons of God, to them that believe in his name, that believe in his name.